Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. This week's episode focuses on Larry Levon and his club, The Paradise Garage, and the post-disco genre name for it. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. to let it roll or should i say techno roll i'm your host nate wilcox and we're continuing our discussion of last night a dj saved my life the history of the disc jockey by bill brewster and frank broughton and as always ryan harkness is my cohort ryan welcome thanks for having me and we're fine i don't want to say we're finally getting to the fun stuff but this is what i view as sort of the meat of the book from right here up through Balearic or so, um, it gets really exciting and innovative. There's just it, genre after genre is popping. This is the chapter they call U.S. Garage, but really could be called the Larry Levan story. The man that they call the greatest DJ in history, the Jimi Hendrix of the turntables, some say. Although that to me seems like a really bad analogy because all they had in common was they're both black. They both died too soon. But Larry Levan was many things. He was not a technical wizard on the turntables. Why do people call him the greatest DJ of all time, Ryan? Oh, well, you know, there's something to be said for, you know, uh, at its core, uh, you can have technical skills, but unless you got the tracks, then uh, then you're not really going to go anywhere. So it's tracks first, technical skills second. And he he apparently had a really deep 
uh, and, and wide eclectic taste. And, uh, you know, uh, kind of similar to African Bambata in, uh, in our hip hop chapters, it, it just seems like he was someone that was able to weave everything together in a way that really uh, that really impressed a lot of people. And, and I guess maybe in, in these post disco days, which is, you know, an, another descriptor for how you could kind of explain this. We had our disco roots and then our disco. And this is kind of post disco after the disco craze cra- crashed and burned. And in this post disco world, I think you, you had to. Uh, differentiate yourself and, and and get yourself away from the stigma maybe a little bit by being you know really into some funk really into some soul even getting into that into some rock and other stuff like that and Larry Levin went Levan went everywhere and anywhere and uh, you know I don't know if I would hail him as the world's greatest ever DJ but this is coming from somebody who whose musical background really starts electronic wise with the Chicago house sound. And there's, there's a, I think the reason that this chapter kind of exists is because you had the Chicago house, Chicago house being, you know, where everybody really puts down that, that marker as far as where house music began. And then you have what was going on in New York, which was Larry Levan at the paradise garage and the garage sound. So garage house. And uh, this was basically kind of, uh, he was he was doing things right through the disco boom and everything sounds really disco. And I, I have to admit that until I read this chapter, I would have just defined everything that these guys played right up into the mid 80s as disco. But once you take a closer look and you realize, OK, this is where this is where it's changing. And this is what happened in New York is that New York never ditched disco. Disco morphed into Garage House in New York. Yeah. And. You can sort of get the same impression if you listen to early Frank, Frankie Knuckles tracks in Chicago. So there's there's definitely a continuum and a transition. And also, I would emphasize Larry's commitment to sort of new wave sounds. He was he was very influenced by what was going on uh, with the CBGB scene in New York and and what was going on in London with new wave and punk and the Eurofunk. And, and things that were coming out in that line. So he's post-disco for sure. Although his, if you look at the breadth of his career, he's a disco DJ. He's one of the, you know, he's mentioned in the disco chapter. I think he might even be in the disco roots chapter. So he's got a real continuity. Um, yeah, all to, these guys were around through the entire, uh, most most of, you know, the whole thing, like all through the heyday and through, you're going to see a lot of the same names in the the Disco Roots Disco and then then this being the Garage, U.S. Garage. It's, it's a lot of the same names. Yeah, and it's also interesting that they had high energy for us like three chapters ago because of our hip-hop. I don't want to say diversion, but our hip hop coverage, but high energy is happening at the same time. And it's basically high energy is the upscale white gay clubs and, and garage is the less upscale black gay clubs is a, a simple way to separate the music. But um, let's go back a little bit. They start the chapter with yet another discussion of the disco sucks movement. They, this is, I think the time in the book when they, discuss uh, Chicago radio DJ Steve Dahl and his disco demolition night and at the most length. I don't want to dwell on that. We've talked about that before. I do want to reemphasize that, yes, it was racist. Yes, it was homophobic. And yes, it was a, a backlash against record companies flooding the market with crap. I, I mean, in the defense of the disco sucks crowd, 
there was so much garbage coming out labeled disco in the late 70s. I can remember it to this day. And even things that were fairly good, like the Bee Gees, when the Bee Gees have between them and Andy Gibb and acts they produced, you know, five of the top 10 hit singles at one time, that's a lot. I mean, people got sick of the Beatles when they were doing that in the in the 60s. <clears throat> they got much sicker of the Bee Gees when they were doing that in the late 70s. But another thing I want to bring up is that it was also the rock generation which had dealt with one musical revolution in the 60s with with the coming of electric guitars and rock music as art and the giant musical festivals. And so you've got a generation that's already dealt with one massive musical change in their lifetimes. And here comes another massive musical change, one that's going to influence history much more so than rock. You know, rock peters out in the mid 90s somewhere for all intents and purposes, this branch of music is going to be dominating, you know, to, to this day, to 2021. And so this whole thing of DJs, it's a lot for people to process. It's change upon change in one generation. So it's not just the racism and the homophobia, although those were big, big factors. It's also this cultural change. People didn't know what to think of this music that seems to be anonymous. It seems to be mass produced or manufactured in some way with technology in ways that people don't understand that in contrast to the rock music that they know and love where they can see the fingers on the guitar strings and, you know, feel like something real is happening. Um, so this, there was a lot of change to process. And, and there was also a, a, a recession, like there was the oil crisis in 79 and then the most severe recession since World War II. And, and I think that that's maybe something that, that kind of gets overlooked is that people just didn't have the disposable money to, to continue to buy records at the amount that they did. And, and I've heard that basically the labels were churning out the same, like basically printing the same number of vinyls in, in 1979 as they were in 1977. And they just ended up with warehouses full of these, these, these disco records that weren't moving. And that was all it took for all the execs who were very uncomfortable with the whole disco movement to begin with, who never understood it and were forced to start hiring black and gay people into their A&R teams. Uh, this was their opportunity for these guys that are suddenly feeling out of touch and unable to, to keep up with what's going on to just kind of say, well, look, this here is now, it's costing us money, the fat is over, and it's time for it to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up the economic point because they don't talk about that in the book, but that was absolutely a massive factor uh, in the transition from 79 to 80. Also, the end of the Jimmy Carter era, the beginning of the Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher era, reactionary politics are, are in command. And it's just a whole new era. And as they say, you know, that the wealthy and celebrated left the clubs, but the young, a flood of young and unsung um flooded the discos latin black gay and brought a new vitality to it and let's hear uh, one of the first songs this is a song that larry levan was famous for breaking in his club sort of against the will of the audience this was not something that was an immediate hit but by the time he had gotten through with his audience they loved it this is tanya gardner's heartbeat larry levan's club version Thank you. 
That was Tana Gardner's Heartbeat, Larry LeVan's Club Mix. And I think you can hear in that one the elements of dub and new wave that are coming in. It's also a very down-tempo song. And so it's it's this is a clear marker from its the garage genre's contemporary high energy, which they're going fast. They're they're sticking to that northern soul. We want those 120 beats per minute plus tempos. This is a song that's slow. When I first heard it, I was like, you know, this was playing in, in massive discos and, and going over. It's but it gives you a good idea of the things Larry LeVan was doing at this transitional point in his career that lead us to these new genres. Yeah, it's kind of the kind of thing that that he was able to get away with because at that point he had enough uh, enough of a reputation that if he was playing a track again and again, people would almost take it as a, if they didn't like it, then maybe that they were wrong. And and that's the kind of cachet that you don't really have that, uh, that, that most DJs don't really have that he had where, where if, if Larry Levin's uh, name was on that record stamped on that record, then uh, people would give it, you know, more than just a cursory listen to because uh, they, they trusted him implicitly and they trusted his taste. He was a taste maker and, uh, you know, you just had to keep up. It was like with Radiohead, you know, you might not get it now, but in three years, you'll really like it. <laughs> I'm, I'm still waiting for that three years to come through on Radiohead for me. But, um, yeah, Larry's audiences, they they trusted him and they learned to dance with it. And it the the, the authors emphasize that this change happens, but that the club's a new generation of DJs come along who capitalize on the structures that were set up in the disco era, the record pools, the relationships with the record companies that they were acknowledged as tastemakers. The radio stations are paying attention to what they're going to play even after the crash. And they're also remixers and producers and the cost of technology is going down, down, down. So it's becoming easier and easier for these DJs to make that leap into producers. And we'll continue to talk about that dichotomy especially as it's embodied in the same person somebody like larry levan or his, his childhood friend frankie knuckles who are both club djs and remixer producers which are two very different roles i think we kind of need to break out and discuss them separately and not not conflate them too wildly and you know this is a period when post disco spawns multiple genres we already talked about high energy which was predominantly in the wealthy gay clubs, white gay clubs in New York, but also London and San Francisco. You've got house bubbling under in Chicago. Uh, Detroit's going to develop techno, which is very closely related to the house scene. There are lots of cross-pollination between Chicago and Detroit. And again, you got to mention the irony of Steve Dahl's Disco Sucks Night happening in a promo game or a baseball game between the Chicago White Sox and the Detroit Tigers, that those two cities that, that – are so closely associated with killing disco are going to be in ever linked with post disco and, and the birth of EDM. Well, who knows what could have happened if, if disco hadn't died the ignoble death that it, that it did, because um, I think one thing that, that, that what we saw uh, when mainstream, when the mainstream music industry got its hands on disco and, and basically beat it to death and, and extracted every nickel that it could out of it is that it has a very, it warps the music scene and it changes it. And, and as we've mentioned many times, like all of the most important changes in what happened uh, in this history of dance music, it always happens when it's out of the spotlight in the corners, marginalized communities uh, being willing to, to do different things and try different things. 
I don't know if that happens if you've got that much money and 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 that much potential fame and fortune kind of floating around on on uh, like like there was with disco. Like that's a it's a really perverting influence to have. And all of a sudden, instead of having people pushing the boundaries and trying new things, you have people going tried and true and trying to hit that make that next hit. Absolutely, that's an excellent point. And and Nelson George, the great. Uh, music writer has a great book called the death of rhythm and blues that covers this period in the eighties when the major labels finally got their hands on pretty much all the major, all the important rhythm and blues labels and just drowned the baby in the bathtub, just absolutely screwed the pooch and killed the genre, which allows hip hop and house and these other underground things to, to come on. So that's a great point that, you know, the spotlight's off. So lots of things, the cat's away, the mice are going to play. And, you know, Larry wasn't the only, DJ mining these areas. They talk about Jellybean Benitez, who was the first DJ to sign a major label contract as an artist in his own right. He was at the Fun House, and his style kind of combined the hip-hop electro sound that Africa Bambata had pioneered that we talked about before, also with Latin sounds. And salsa had been having a boom in New York. Salsa is a New York-born genre influenced by Cuban music. Been booming in New York since the 50s and, you know, in the early 70s, it really got big playing Yankee stadium and stuff. And so those sounds didn't die either when the salsa fad fell disco kind of pushed salsa aside. And yeah, that's a big factor. Go ahead. If, if you want to hear uh, like house music, having such a Latin influence, Jellybean Benitez is, is the guy that was really pushing that percussive uh, sound. And you hear some of the stuff that he released in the mid eighties as Jellybean. Uh, and it's, uh, and, and you can really kind of understand where a lot of like a lot of the Latin grooves survived and, and came out front where I think, you know, they, they were there in, in the disco days, but they were kind of, uh, you know, off to the side of maybe some, some of the funkier elements and or some I'd of the say, orchestral hits. I'd even say that the Latin influence was subsumed into the mainstream of disco, like bongos and congas and stuff like that is so central to the disco sound that for a while you can't tell what's Latin and what's what's Afro-American. You know, I mean, it's it's just all right in that mainstream. And so the Latin and I, I, I would like to know more about Jellybean Benitez. And I feel like this book maybe could have covered him a little bit more. It definitely could have, cause he's interesting. He, he was in a two year relationship with Madonna back at the start of her career and did a lot of production and remixing on her first album in 1983. He's the guy who basically wrote holiday for her. So, uh, I mean, this, this is, this is where, where you see kind of, uh, the high energy, uh, as, as we talked about before, uh, the interesting thing about that is that it took a, a weird, turn right into commercial uh dance music and high energy fuses with house and it fuses with garage house and the jersey sound and everything else like that and suddenly all of the the dance that you hear maybe in the later 80s like the cnc music factory and the stuff with the harder harder edge but it's still commercial friendly uh jelly bin benitez was kind of at the beginning in 1983 he was taking that high energy sound and 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 churning out radio hits with it like holiday he remixed whitney houston michael jackson and Olivia Newton-John, uh, Fleetwood Mac, Paul McCartney. Like this guy here was was really like one of the, uh, for a guy who gets a paragraph in the book, he, he was one of the dudes doing a lot of the heavy lifting on the remix scene in the early 80s. Absolutely, and a producer too. And, and they also talk about Danceteria, which was a club that mixed, had a real emphasis on the Euro post-punk, funk, and American new wave 
uh, and less of the black soul and gospel influences that Larry LeBond kept as a, a central part of the mix in the garage. Uh, Danceteria was, you know, mining those kind of more mainstream, although that was very innovative at the time. But let's hear another another tune. This is one that Ryan picked out that that differentiates itself from pure disco with the synthesized funk, but it's got soul overtones all over the front. This is Visual, a.k.a. Boyd Jarvis. The music got me from 1983. And that was visual, also known as Boyd Jarvis doing the music, Got Me. And that's 1983. And that's something you can hear, and it's clearly no longer disco. It's something new. It's still very disco influenced, but we're we're exploring uncharted territory at this point. And, and there's actually a debate as to whether or not that record is the the first house music record or the official story has Jesse Saunders getting the first house vinyl pressing with on and on also in 1983. And he's, he's in Chicago and that's, that's the official Chicago story is it was Jesse Saunders on and on. But some people are saying that Boyd Jarvis is really the guy who invented house and music got me is, is the proof came out in 1983 question is which, which one was first or, or which one you consider to be, you know, different enough to differentiate, you know, it's, uh, it's, it gets difficult when with Chicago house, it's so different. Uh, when you hear it, you automatically know that it's a different genre where I feel like it was kind of like with the beginning of hip hop, when you had, uh, the sugar Hill gang, uh, rapping over disco and you're like, is this really hip hop or do we have to wait until the message comes out? And that's very clearly something different. So uh, Boyd Jarvis is still kind of, it, it's something different, but it's still, it feels like more of a, it's still transitioning from one genre to another with one foot in each, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think part of that is because it's, it's New York based and, and the disco scene was the strongest in New York. It started in New York. It lasted the longest in New York. And, in other places like Chicago and Detroit, it was easier to sweep the decks clean and start something new. Um, although, like I said, Frankie Knuckles uh, definitely was a disco DJ, and you can hear it in his early early sets that are still preserved. And also, that relationship between Larry LeVan and Frankie Knuckles reminds me so much of Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck in the English rock world, where you've got two teenagers who are very really talented and come up together and you're even in some bands together and then split apart, you know, Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart hit first. And then Jimmy Page really scores with Led Zeppelin and codifies a genre. And I kind of see Frankie Knuckles and Larry LeVan in the same way. If, if I can make those kind of cross genre comparisons, but I can't think of too many other artists. You usually get somebody like Curtis Mayfield and Jerry Butler. They grew up together. They're in a band together. Curtis writes songs for Jerry, et cetera, et cetera. And they never quite become full on rivals. And I don't know that Larry and Frankie consider themselves rivals, but historically to this day, there's still a rivalry between the garage sound and, and the house sound. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's pretty phenomenal to, to think about the fact that you had two kids from New York city who, who are, who are close enough friends to have gotten arrested, stealing donuts off the back of a truck when they were teenagers 
Um, one of the, they, they both go and start DJing in New York. Frankie Knuckles needs to move to Chicago to get out from under the shadow of Larry Levan. And Larry Levan codifies Garage House. And then Frankie Knuckles is the guy who, who basically picks up all of these Chicago house tracks and starts playing those. So Larry Levan creates the, is, is basically the Paradise Garage, is the person who creates the space and plays the records and people are writing music for him to play. And then Frankie Knuckles does the exact same thing in Chicago with a completely different kind of music. And it's wild to think that that, you know, it, this all comes from from one place, from two guys that were that were really good friends. Yeah, it's 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 fun to think about and to imagine, you know, their conversations and their musical education together. They both DJed at the Continental Baths, which we talked about in the Disco Roots chapter. And then they went when their separate ways. Frankie went on to Chicago, like you said, and Larry went on to a place called Soho Place and then another club called Reed Street where he worked with Michael Brody, who was his business partner, who was the owner of the Reed Street Club. And the Reed Street is high disco. This is the mid-70s. This is post-gay liberation, pre-AIDS. So, I mean, you know, all bets are off. Wild behavior is going on. It's very inspired by David Mancuso's loft. That's another thing that's very important about Larry Levin, I think, is – and he was – unabashed about flying the flag of the original disco pioneers he would say you know i come from the david mancuso uh school of djs that um you know that there these original disco djs are the ones that i spawn from and i'm losing my list where's my little list yeah, here they are. Nicky Ciano, uh, who I want to mention, was probably Larry's biggest influence. And both he and David Mancuso have been lovers of Larry at one point. And then he was also name-checked Steve DeQuisto and Michael Capello, both of whom were Francis Grasso understudies, David Rodriguez. These are the school of DJs I come from, Larry would tell you. So it, it's very much conti a continuation of the original disco tradition. It, he didn't see himself uh, as an idol killer and i'm blanking on what the word uh is for people <laughs> idols now but um yeah he saw himself as continuing a tradition and he's also spawning all this stuff you know there's a whole generation of djs that come after larry levan david morales danny tanaglia kevin fisher junior vasquez danny Crivet, kenny carpenter francois kaborki and joe Clausel, who all point to larry levan as a central influence in their life and and you know, you talked about his musical eclecticism, but it's also very important to, to emphasize that he was a master of the sound system. Um, he, Rick Long, built the sound system at the Paradise Garage, and, and the club opened initially as soon as they had the sound system finished. Before they did any of the decoration, they had opening nights construction parties where people could dress up like construction workers and pretend to help them build out the club. And that sound system was absolutely central to it. And Larry was somebody who would get into the details, who knew the technology, and down to the speaker placement. Like, you know, DJs will talk to this day in documentaries of when they worked with Larry LeBan and he played their clubs, that he would spend hours and hours perfecting the sound in the club and get rid of all the dead spots, get rid of all the hot spots just have a perfect all the sound is beamed onto the dance floor you can step off the dance floor and have a conversation but you get out on the dance floor and it's hitting you in the chest there's no dead spots out there so very attention to detail and that's something that he learned from david mancuso and, and this was a guy you know he did lights at the gallery with nikki siana he i think spiked the punch ball the loft uh in, in his early days for mancuso so he learned the whole thing and and people emphasize over and over that one of his gifts was this ability to take a club that's packed with 2,500 people 
and make it feel like you're at a private party in Larry's living room, that, that he's sharing a very special musical experience with you and the other people in the club. And it, it's just an oasis. You, you know, there's quotes, you felt special, like you were in an elite group with people on the same level of understanding about music. And people felt like if they were hearing it at the garage, they were not hearing it anywhere else, that you were going to hear it in the garage weeks or months earlier than you heard it anywhere else, even in New York City. Maybe other places will never hear this music. So there's definitely a sense of shared adventure. And this is also a time when, you know, Gordon Gecko is out there prowling Wall Street and times are very harsh. The Reagan administration is turning an utterly callous eye to the AIDS epidemic and you know, greed is good and, and there's no such thing as society. These are the things that are being told, people are being told by their elected leaders. And the Paradise Garage was an oasis away from that, a place where young black and Latin gay people could come and be accepted, which, man, those places were far and few between uh, in the early 80s. So he really created this, this magical place and kind of kept the torch lit. Uh, that David Mancuso and others had lit in the disco. And even with all the blowback and the hurricane winds and the backlash um, kept that going. And, you know, they, they again talk about, you know, Levant's greatness is proof that technical pro, pro, prowess is but a tiny part of DJ. That he's no match for Walter Gibbons and, and other turntable masters. He was a slapdash mixer. Um, you know, the only guaranteed thing was surprise this is a guy who might throw altered states the movie on <laughs> at the middle of a show he might play a ballad he might wander off and leave the record to run to the end have blank space between his records sometimes he'd be noodling on his keyboard to accompany the song and not realize the song had ended because he's so high in the booth and you know so they say that his obsession with control and his self-destructive streak combined to to mean a high opera level of drama. And let's hear from our sponsors and come back and talk about some of that drama. And the thing about this era is that DJs had established themselves as powers in the record industry. They could break records. They could make things sell. And so people like Boy George and Prince would come to the club. Boy George, uh, in his memoir, says that he snorted his first line of coke in the booth at, at the Paradise Garage. There's a story about Prince wanting to hear 1999, newly recorded, unreleased, wants to hear it on the, the sound system there. And he comes to the club and, and Larry's people, Prince's people tell Larry's people that he's there. And Larry makes him wait for an hour. And then Prince is about to leave. And then Larry plays Prince for an hour. And it's unclear if Prince actually stayed around to get to hear it or not. I, they didn't get to that point. Yeah, a little bit of that uh, self-destructive, uh, self-important, uh, just kind of do it my way uh, attitude that he had. And I think uh, someone, uh, one of the articles I read said that he was the first superstar DJ. And I, I can see that in, in a way because I think a lot of the stuff that he did and the way that people ate it up is something that you could only do if you are kind of, if you have that that uh, that superstar cachet, you know, you can all of a sudden, if you do something really weird in the middle of the night that isn't uh, to be expected, like if he puts Altered States, the movie on in, in the club, everybody, instead of getting angry and confused, which they would, would if if any no name no face dj did all of a sudden oh larry's doing this larry's doing that and there's all this discussion in the book about uh larry's larry wrecked me tonight or or larry picked us out and did this and there's other stories about how he'll you know play the same track for 30 minutes almost antagonistically 
Um, and, and I think it's one of those things where, again, when it, where we go back to discussing him as one of the world's greatest DJ ever, uh, you got to look at the paradise garage and, uh, the vibe that it had, uh, to those, you know, 2000 plus people in there. Uh, I have no doubt that it felt like it was the greatest thing ever. I've, I've lived through, you know, times where I've gone to certain places and, and had the time of my life and it was formative and I met all my friends and I had all my great times and that all that was the soundtrack to my life. And that, that, you know, obviously elevates it to, to what anybody else is doing. Um, how Larry's stuff would, would hold up to this day. Again, I'm, I sit more on the Chicago house side. So I find that Larry's stuff is, is not as exciting to me. So I'm not one, one to ask, but there, there's definitely a lot of uh, color coming from, from the fact that he was in the middle. He was the, 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 the force of nature. He was the personality that was at the forefront of the paradise garage. He was the figurehead. He was the leader. So there's, there's so much extra stuff, almost cult-like to a certain degree, you know? Uh, so you, that, that's all wrapped up in what Larry LeVan was doing. Yeah. And people talk about, you know, he would really communicate stories through the lyrics of the songs he chose to play. And, 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 you know, there's, uh, one now famous DJ, I can't remember who tells a story about, you know, Larry could suck all night long, just seven hours of garbage and then 15 minutes that would totally wreck your life. And, you know, those kind of experiences, are ephemeral and, and can't be captured and documented in the future. And I think that this book has really helped me to remember that recorded music can preserve a lot of the magic of music, but it can't re- preserve all of it. And, and the, the DJ experience is something that's, you know, DJs can record sets and people can vicariously experience the, the musical flow that DJs create. You know, we don't have the Francis Grasso or David Mancuso sets from the early seventies. We'd love to have, but by the time you get to the eighties, you're hearing more and more full sets that are preserved and you can get an idea of what they were doing musically, but you can't replace that feel of the crowd, the time and place, the meaning of these songs when they were new, when they were first being heard, or they were six months old and he's bringing them back kind of tongue in cheek or whatever. That that time and place element is absolutely central to music. And, and I think this book, one of the reasons this book is so important is it reminds people that that is, is still true. Even with all this technology, the moment uh, music's magic lives in the moment, you know, and, and, they also talk about you know the mix of of, of bands that he, of, of music he would play like you know Rough Trade the UK underground label Obscurities as much as Soul Soul Classics Soul Soul being the uh, classic seventies disco independent label Yazoo the early synth pop duo as much as Loretta Holly, Holloway Jaw Wobble the disgraced bass player from Public Image Limited super dub reggae influenced stuff Talking Heads who were mixing funk with their new wave mary and faithful who's having a big comeback in the early 80s is this you know elder statesman woman who's lived through it all absolutely survived you know pure hell Ian jury and the blockheads as much as mfsb and gwen Guthrie. he even broke yoko ono's walking on thin ice which is a very difficult listen um you know yeah, and- i checked that out and I, I i listened to that i couldn't figure it out i was wondering did, are they talking about one of the one of the remixes did he do something with a remix or did he play a, a beat and it was never it was never clear how he did it and i, I suppose 
it's uh, it's just a mystery but yeah that one i one i'm impressed by yeah for sure and, and he had the ability to do that or break pat benatar's love is a battlefield as a as a disco song you know which was an fm radio staple um and and he could also break commercial pop songs that his audience would otherwise be looking down their nose at um who's the example uh that they talk about ah, no my nose sucked today anyway but but he could he could oh, company B's fascinated like something that his audience thought was corny that maybe you could hear at the other clubs across town that were not as cool and and larry falls in love with the song and he's like you suckers are going to hear this this is uh this is good and we're going to hear it here at the garage and so you know that kind of trust that he had and power that he had over his audience and it wasn't just his audience directly at the club he had a very close relationship with frankie crocker who it's hard for people today to fathom how powerful frankie crocker was in new york at wbls he was a radio dj he was a big influence on the rappers his rapping style was was a huge influence on hip-hop later on or in our era that we're talking about now but he'd been on the radio for 10 years and he was basically glued to the turntables at the paradise garage and if frankie broke a record Frankie would grab it and play it on, on the radio on Monday. And, you know, there was a, a little record store, Vinyl Mania, nearby. It was the closest record store to the club. And, you know, they're record people, they're music people. They pride themselves on knowing music. They start getting these requests for records they've never heard of. And then they figure, they trace it to the club and they hire a couple of kids who are regulars at the club, open up an annex to their store that specializes in 12 inches. And pretty soon they're opening the door at, you know, 9 a.m. or whatever to a crowd of people that are desperate to buy the record they heard Larry break last night. So it's, it's like, you know, drunks at the liquor store waiting to get their booze. These kids need those tunes. And, and, and we're you know, talking hundreds of records, sometimes thousands of, of an, of an individual, of an individual track, hundreds of copies of one, one track that, that Larry LeVan will, uh, will take and elevate. Yeah. And, and being sold out of one store. So that's probably happening all over the city as well. And, and, and around the country and, in places where people are keeping up. So it's, um, it's, you know, a testament to his power at the time. And he's also doing remixes and, and they talk about how his early remixes in the seventies, like Cognac's how high DD Bridgewater's bad for me are very much disco disco. And, and, you know, you can hear Larry LeVan as a peer of Walter Gibbons as one of the key disco remixers but within a couple years uh the stuff he's doing things like his own group the peach boys don't make me wait are very very different from the disco he'd been doing just a few years earlier and again you know these threads keep coming back into the tapestry and dub reggae you know bob marley has just died died in 1981 after becoming finally broke through in america as a major rock star and you know, English groups like The Clash and Public Image are doing heavily dub-influenced stuff. Uh, a new generation of reggae stars, Sly and Robbie and others, are putting out reggae records. So reggae is as big as it's ever going to be in the U.S., and Larry is all over it. And those elements, the echo, the reverb, the big space, the big, big, big bass doing weird things, play, the way that the dub records stretch out time and and take advantage of those uh, sound systems are all boiled into his um, into his particular brew. So a lot of times people say garage is is 
soul and gospel and jazz influenced disco with an emphasis on real instruments. But I also think that reggae element is a big part of it to this day. Um, and they also talk about the way he, you know, uh, he remixed Go Bang by Dinosaur L, which was a production by Arthur Russell. And they get into this weird discussion of Arthur Russell, who's apparently quite an eccentric character. Yeah, and, it was great. Yeah, that was that was one of those little little side sidebars that I, I started digging into Arthur Russell because the best way uh, maybe the first time I read Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, I didn't I didn't quite enjoy it as much as I did this time around because I wasn't doing it right. And the way to do it right is you should be sitting there, you know, uh, maybe in one book is you're, you're, you're drinking it with a glass of wine by the fireplace. This one here, you should be sitting next to your Spotify account or your YouTube, or at least with a notepad and pen to write down some of these names. And then you got to stop every so often and, 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 and dig a little bit and see, see what you find. Cause you might be pleasantly surprised. And Arthur Russell he was less of a disco producer than he was an avant-garde composer who who got kind of wrapped up in the in the disco scene and he wrote some really weird stuff and uh, go bang by dinosaur l we had in the disco roots episode uh, we had a sample of it and it's one of the we we picked it because it it shows you how untraditional and and strange it was and it's something that uh, that he made that that changes rhythm completely every 24 bars because that's when he was when he wrote it he still wrote it as an avant-garde composer who was friends with Philip Glass and David Byrne and, and a bunch of other kind of uh, strange cutting edge classical uh, people. And, uh, and he brought that in with him. Uh, he did a bunch of stuff. He was dinosaur L he was loose joints and uh, yeah, he was somewhere around with the peach boys when all of that kind of stuff was happening. So he was deep in with this scene, making everything way weirder than it would have been without him. And Arthur Russell is just one of those names where it's like, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, it's a deep one with him. Yeah, it's fun stuff. I, I look at this book as a source book or an encyclopedia. It's definitely a starting point for many, many adventures and follow-ups. And let's hear, um, this is a song from Man Friday. It's in the rhythm. And this is an unreleased Paradise Garage mix. And Ryan, what made you pick out Man Fridays? It's in the rhythm. So that's the B side to uh, a vinyl that was released, uh, like I think 10 years ago, which was uh, unreleased specials that Larry Levan used to play a lot. And on the other side was the Peach Boys. Don't make, uh, I can't remember what Peach Boys track it was, but it was another one of those core ones that had a lot of those elements of what makes a garage tune. Uh, it, it, it's because garage music, when you think about it, um, there's, uh, we're, we're going to get into this just a bit in, in a bit. There's the Jersey sound, which I think is a lot more definable as, as the garage sound, but, but garage music is kind of, uh, it was just defined as anything you would hear Larry Levan play, uh, at the paradise garage. And, and it's hard to kind of, to pick that down, but I think that track being one of, one of the Larry Levan tracks that he kind of created and he kept in as, you know, one of his special weapons in his record box, didn't even put it out. Uh, see, it seemed like a, a good one that kind of distilled what that garage sound was. Cool. And 
I think it's a good time to start bringing up sort of the downfall of Larry LeVan. I mean, um, he, they, they mentioned he had this self-destructive streak. Not only was he a control freak who was really bent on taking care of his guests at the disco and making sure their experience was a great one, but he was also just in, he hated Larry LeVan apparently and is just destroying himself as, as, fast as he can maybe not as fast as he can he made it to 38 so he's not like you know a member of the 21 club or the 27 club but he's right up there and and you know heroin is an element in the scene and it's just one of those things you know people would come by and they'd have a little heroin mixed in with the cocaine he'd do a hit on a saturday and everything's fine and then pretty soon he's doing it on saturday and sunday and you know maybe friday saturday sunday and then pretty soon he wants to fill it on a tuesday and before you know it he's sold all his records and um you know paradise closes because of you know new york real estate and and something goes on with michael brody i think he dies and you know they would have reopened in a new location but they couldn't there was a new building down the street that wanted them out of there and uh you know they weren't able to adapt because of the the loss of the owner and you know, Larry had a really hard time, uh, struggled, you know, and, and they tell stories like Gwen Guthrie's Padlock EP. He was commissioned by Island Records to remix one song. Instead, it turns into a whole EP, it takes him so long and costs so much money. The Island's just pissed off and doesn't even release it. And even people like Judy Weinstein, I'm glad they mentioned, and I think it's somebody we should mention. She was kind of a mother figure for Larry and, and sort of his manager. Uh, she was in charge of the For the Record, the top record pool in the country. And, and, you know, was kind of the power behind the throne in a lot of ways. And even she couldn't keep him on the straight and narrow or even in shape to, to get in the booth and make it happen. And, and, you know, there's this personal downfall. And towards the end of his life, he has some glory moments. He tours Japan in 1992 with Francois Kaporkian. Um, he, he plays England and they talk about how he's like eight days late and arrives with no records, but he stayed there for uh, several months and, and ends up doing his last remixes there. And, and so he's getting to see this international impact he's had by, before the end of his life. And, and they describe, um, Kaporkian describes one set he plays in Japan where uh, the lyrics of the songs he's playing are clearly a testimony to himself and his what he knows is his short lifespan. He plays a song, Time Waits for No One and Other Ones. And that must have been really powerful to see, to see the Jimi Hendrix of the turntables playing a set of I'm About to Die. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it goes fast, kids. You know, enjoy it while you can. And yeah, that's, that's the kind of... Yeah, go almost, ahead. Uh, the whole thing is just kind of... Uh, to a certain degree, I feel like the whole story of the Paradise Garage and Larry Levanis as a DJ and God, uh, he, he gets eulogized a lot because he did die. But I find that it's very unfortunate that it doesn't kind of touch more on, on you know, the fact that the heroin really, 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 really took him out of it, and really uh, made, made it a, the whole story a tragedy. We, we've talked about how so many of these these guys didn't make it. Uh, through this era, uh, either via drug abuse or or via AIDS, and for him, the drugs got him. He died of a died of a. He apparently had a, a weak heart to begin with, and with all of the the extra drugs, he just ended up in the hospital and heart failure. Yep, and we can't say for sure that the heroin killed him, but 
you know, people like Bobby Darren and Burt Burns, the writer of Twist and Shout, had very similar heart problems and died at 38 also without the heroin problems. So there's no telling, you know, but definitely the heroin problems made the last years of his life much harder and sadder. And there's kind of a successor to Larry, or definitely a successor, a guy named Tony Humphreys, uh, who took over a club named Zanzibar in Newark, Newark, New Jersey, across the river from Manhattan. And this is a club that was it, it built in complete imitation of the garage and there's multiple DJs, Hippie Torales and T Scott were big DJs there before Tony Humphreys arrived. So it was already a garage influence club, uh, big eclectic playlists, playing the kind of dub influence stuff Larry was doing, playing some of the house music and techno music. And Tony Humphreys comes along and kind of codifies the garage genre that he's the guy, you know, he, he nurtures local acts like Phase 2 and the Turntable Orchestra, but he's he's got this focus on records that sound like they're played by real bands, real voices, real instruments. And Larry LeVan was always big on vocals. That's another thing I think that separates him from Frankie Knuckles and House. House tends to be a very instrumental scene, um, whereas Garage always keeps a place for the vocals, and that's where the soul and gospel elements come in and are preserved and, and Tony Humphreys really codifies this and, and Tony Humphreys definitely does not have the reputation Larry LeVan does not that he's dissed or anything but somebody one of the DJs they quote in this said you know if Larry had lived he'd just be doing what Tony Humphreys is doing and it wouldn't be seen as the greatest DJ of all time he'd be somebody we take for granted like that um, and this is a question I wanted to get to but didn't how much of a role did Larry play in breaking house music and techno music in the New York scene? It doesn't seem, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the difficulty in answering that is, is the fact that what's considered garage music now is, is, is under garage house. So I, I feel like it's one of those things where uh, house music comes from uh, Frankie Knuckles in Chicago playing at the warehouse. Uh, and just like kind of garage music was from Levan playing at Paradise Garage. So house music gets its name in, in, in Chicago and, and, and it gets kind of locked in with that sound. So I don't think Levan gets, gets much credit as far as uh, breaking or, or, or pushing the house sound. But I, I want to make it very clear that by 1985, everybody is just sleeping with everybody musically. It is a, it is a, a big gangbang of all of these, you know, uh, Chicago house uh, and Detroit techno elements and, uh, and, and garage house, all, all of that. And, and high energy and the commercialized pop that comes from high energy, all that stuff ends up in a, in a, in a melting pot. And uh, you know, some, some people end up being known for specific sounds and elements that come out of it. And some people uh, just, just kind of are just blend it all together and play it. Levan played Chicago house. Uh, I, I imagine he probably would play some techno considering the fact that he'd be playing sometimes for 12 hours or more, but he was, he was known for that soulful sound and for instrumentation uh, that less robotic sound and New York in the, in the early days before Frankie Knuckles started kind of coming back from Chicago and, and pushing that, that sound and, and him having enough reputation to be able to say, this is cool. Check this out. I don't think it was, uh, I, I hear that a lot of the New York guys were basically saying that, that all these Chicago house tracks were kind of raw and, and unfinished. 
Let's let's hear the kind of stuff Tony Humphreys was playing. This is the Jobert singer's Stand on the Word from 1985, Tony Humphreys remix. the Joe Bear singers or the Joe Bert singers. I'm not sure I'll say it. Stand on the word, Tony Humphrey's remix of that. And another factor in the designation of these genres, and genres are always kind of an artificial construct. If you talk to musicians, you'll find that they're very rarely boxing themselves in as narrowly as we like to box them in. But there is some truth to genres because you can hear two Chicago house tracks and say, ah, that's house and, and identify the, the traits. And even with a style as sort of vague as garage, you can hear it. And part of the reason it was defined as a style was because of compilation records that were put together and sold in England where they would take tracks that Tony Humphreys and Larry LeVan are playing at these clubs and, and market them as garage, New York garage. And so England has kind of, you know, once rave becomes the biggest thing ever in England in the late eighties, they kind of take over as the sort of historians. And this book is a testament to that, you know, Brewster and Broughton are English and and they're kind of writing the history of this movement. And so the, the way the genres are seen from the perspective of England defines how we see them to this day. And so that's kind of you know, one of the the key aspects of Garage. And also Garage becomes the, ironically, it goes from being the downscale sound of 80s New York to being the upscale sound of 90s London at a time when, you know, uh, drums and bass and jungle and other genres like that are really under a lot of heat from the police and, and not... You know, they're for the kids. They're not for the upscale folks. Upscale folks are now dancing to the stuff that's inspired by what Tony Humphreys and Larry LeVon were doing in New York 10 years earlier. Just a classic irony. You know, it always takes the rich people a little while to catch up. Yeah. And uh, all that garage got popular basically coming out of the acid house days. Apparently nobody was nobody wanted to go home after the clubs closed. But this was before after clubs. So they'd come out of Ministry of Sound at 10 a.m. in the morning and they'd go across the street to a pub and the pub would be playing uh, Garage House. And uh, the interesting thing about that is it didn't take long for these DJs to start really pitching up the records and they were playing them at plus six, plus eight. And so you have tracks that were, you know, originally 118, 120 up at like 130. So that's, that's, that's where you get the etymology of all of a sudden, you know, you have garage house and you're listening to it and you're like, what does this have to do with garage? Okay. This is the reason it's called speed garage is because it was the garage records played at plus eight. And then as that went on, they obviously refined it down to some specific bass sounds. Once again, that you can, you can find in that Boyd Jarvis sample that we played earlier, that, 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 that synthesized bass sound, that very particular one. And that becomes the root for Speed Garage. But it was originally just because Todd Terry went over to the UK and heard them playing this garage music at plus eight. And he said, it's a Speed Garage. <laughs> yeah. And, and Garage is a, 
you know, it's a deceptive moniker anyway. There's already a, a genre of rock music called garage rock, garage rock, as it's usually pronounced because it's an American phenomenon mainly, although The Clash had a song, We're a Garage Band. So, you know, this is already a genre name that rockists find very confusing. Like I know coming from a rock background, when I first heard garage was a genre of dance music, I was like, what? You know, and then when I heard what it was, I was like, what? Because I was expecting to have some relationship to the seeds or the 13th floor elevators or whatever and, and, and had nothing. So, yeah, there's lots of room for confusion. And that's what we're trying to help everybody sort out. And so that's our coverage of U.S. Garage, as they call the chapter or the Larry LeVan chapter. Next week, we'll be back and we'll be finally getting to Chicago and talking about Frankie Knuckles and the birth of House. So for Ryan Harkness, thank you very much. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, the history of the disc jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. They'll be heading to Chicago to talk about Frankie Knuckles and the birth of house music. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.